thanks for coming out on a Wednesday night and continuing this Hebrew study. And uh, I'll tell you up front, tonight's going to be a very, very interesting topic. It was a couple weeks ago, a couple sessions ago, that I told you that I gave you a teaser as we closed, saying that we'll, we're going to dive into this Melchizedek. And then last Wednesday night, rather than diving into Melchizedek, what happened? We all got spanked. So he says, I would dive into Melchizedek. One chapter he puts in there, I would, if y'all were smart enough, stay along with me. That's the Hebrew writer said that. I didn't say that. He said that. So last week we had to do a primer to get everybody called up to where we should be able to tonight, as we open up chapter 7, actually jump into Melchizedek. Who is he? So I'm going to do something I, I usually do, but tonight I'm going to do it very specific. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding so we can understand what we don't understand. Understand who is this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the high priest. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, uh, we believe with all of our hearts that your Holy Spirit can open our minds to understand the scriptures. And this is your good will, your good purpose. So tonight we assemble to read the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're seeking the answer to the question, who is he? And what does it mean that Jesus is from this priesthood of Melchizedek? So tonight I ask your Holy Spirit to reveal truth so that the truth would not only set us free, but Lord, that we would know you in ways we never knew you before. In Jesus' name, amen. So one thing I should have done uh, that I didn't realize until I got to going through this outline, I should have gave you a little context uh, before we open up chapter 7. So you don't have it in your notes, but I'm going to back up and read the last few verses of the previous chapter, actually 18 through 20. So it's not in your notes, but listen carefully. So as I open chapter 7, here's the context. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. What leads us through the curtain? This hope, this expectancy, leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's the one that tore the veil. He's the one that made a way for us to enter this sanctuary of God's presence. He, and here we go, here's why I should have gave you the context. He, the one who has gone in before us through the veil, has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I can read first verse of chapter 7. Back, it, this is on your outline. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem. So, we, we believe that when it says city of Salem... It is what we would know today as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, and he's also a priest of, the, of God the Most High. He's a king, and he's a priest. When Abraham... Now, what are we reading? We're reading the book of Hebrews. This was written to the first century church. When you talk about Abraham in context of the first century church, you're talking about a person, an event, a time of 2,000 years before. 2,000 years before. Abraham predates Jesus by 2,000 years. So in Hebrews, we're talking about these guys, Melchizedek and Abraham, or Abram, same guy, 2,000 years earlier. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem. He's priest of God Most High. And when Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice. 
And king of Salem means king of peace. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. It is Jerusalem. But he's a high priest. And if you just read that and you didn't know the Old Testament law, you would you'd say, so? So what? Uh, so what? It, it in itself is incredibly unusual. God didn't do it. He didn't make the priest and the king the same person. Why? Because absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So he separated the offices. Not even King David was allowed to be priest and king. He couldn't do it. God separated the roles. In fact, let me give you some examples. If you go back and read when Saul, King Saul, got in trouble and lost the kingdom to King David. Well, he was disobedient in his battle. He didn't do that right. But he did something else. He was rejected by God by offering a sacrifice while he was king. And again, if you don't really study deeply, you'll see Saul going to this altar and offering a sacrifice, and you think, well, that's good, right? No, it was bad. Because he's not the priest. God established a different role for the priest. And what is the role of the priest? The priest was the spiritual intercessor. The priest didn't run the army. He didn't run the government. But the king didn't run the temple. He didn't run the, the worship. They were separate. So here this guy Melchizedek, he's in Jerusalem. He's with Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. And he's both king and priest. And I've just read to you that Jesus goes through the outer curtain in the order of Melchizedek. Now stay with me, stay with me. There's a second example. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy. How many of y'all remember that story? He, he, he's the king and he got too big for his britches, which happens a lot of times to kings. He got too big for his britches and he thought he could just walk into the temple and go into the holy place. He could, he, he appointed himself priest, I suppose. He just started in there. And you remember what happened? The priests around him are saying, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't be in here. You shouldn't be in here. Something bad's going to happen. No, 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 you're not supposed to be in here. He, he wouldn't listen to him. He just kept proceeding deeper and deeper and deeper into the temple, heading toward the holy place. And they looked at him, and leprosy broke out all over him. Uh, I'm going off the cuff here. I think. They escorted him out, and he ended up being unable to lead, uh, do anything from that point on in the rest of his uh, kingdom because his leprosy was so bad. My point is this. When you read this first verse of chapter 7, something marvelous is revealed. This Melchizedek is a priest, and he is a king. Hmm, interesting. It is also clear that Melchizedek worshipped God Most High. Now you might again think, okay, this is before Abraham. Abraham meets him after Abraham has received the covenant. But there's, how did this Melchizedek know God before Abraham? Because he's appearing before Abraham. So I want you to picture this between the time of the great flood of Noah in the time of Abraham, there's several generations in there, but Melchizedek is in there actually a little ahead of Abraham. I don't know how much, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but they're worshiping the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem is there's no Isaac and there's no Jacob. It's just the God of Abraham right now, right? Those other guys haven't showed up yet. Abraham had become very powerful. In fact, when does this encounter take place? After Abraham has been victorious in a battle. Abraham had become very powerful and he had become very rich. You remember when they, when they eventually move into the plains outside of Sodom and he's got Lot, his brother-in-law uh, with him and, or, and, and, he, and what happens? They have to split up because there's not enough land they're so wealthy their wealth then wasn't in their stocks and bonds it was in their stocks their animals in their fields 
So he'd become very powerful and rich. And then, I don't have time to go into detail, but if you read the account in Genesis, this, this king, this not, 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 not uh, Melchizedek, this king takes Lot and his family and his wealth prisoner and carries them off as plunder. Abraham gets word that Lot has been taken prisoner and they've stolen all of his stuff. And Abraham rounds up a, a group of guys and goes and makes war against this king and defeats the king supernaturally. Abraham's not a military commander, but he defeats this king. It is on his way back after the battle is over that he runs into this Melchizedek guy for the first time. Now stay with me. After the battle, Melchizedek came to Abraham. It doesn't say Abraham went to Melchizedek. Uh -uh. Melchizedek approaches Abraham. Now, now he's just won this battle, and not only is he already rich, he has just become more rich. You know why he's more rich? Because in that day, when you, when you defeated somebody in battle, guess what you took? Everything. Everything. So all the wealth of that king that had just stolen all the wealth of Lot, all of that became Abraham's. And here comes Melchizedek. And something happens. As Melchizedek came to victorious Abraham, he gives him a blessing of God. He gives him a blessing. Now if you're Abraham, you have to be wondering, hmm, this is interesting. I don't know this guy. He's the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. And he's a high priest. And he's just given me a blessing. Remember, he's a priest of God. Abraham then does something in response to getting the blessing. What's he do? He gives a tenth, a tithe, to this king, this priest, Melchizedek. So he, he takes a tenth of the, the, the spoils of the battle that he's just won, which was their currency of that day, and gives it to the priest, Melchizedek. But who started it? The Mel Melchizedek gave him the blessing, and in response to the blessing, he gives him a tenth. So I want to do something. That's Hebrews. I just read Hebrews. So let's back up. Let's back up to Genesis. Because it's in Genesis that you'll see the actual story told. A 2,000 year before event in Genesis. Four, four, chapter 14. After Abraham returned from his victory over Ketalaamor and all his allies, the king of Sodom, again, that's Nebuchadnezzar. I keep on saying Nebuchadnezzar. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, it's Melchizedek. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High. In Genesis, what he's called out is both there too. Brought Abram some bread and some wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Two-way blessing. So Melchizedek blesses Abram, Abraham, and then Melchizedek blesses God for the victory that he has handed to Abraham. This is where it gets interesting. Again, now I'm jumping back to, back to the future, 2,000 years forward to the book of Hebrews, verse 2. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother. Who are we talking about? We're not talking about Abraham. We're talking about Melchizedek. There is no record of his father or mother. There's no record of his ancestors. There's no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest how long? Forever. Resembling 
the Son of God. A king and a priest. His name means justice. His name means peace. Who is this guy? No genealogy. Hebrew says he has no genealogy, no birth date, no death certificate. Who is this guy? He is forever, a forever priest of God. Forever. Resembling the Son of God. Who is this guy? He is obviously, listen, he is greater than Abraham. This is important. Because I'm going to tell you, Abraham's the father of our faith, right? But he's greater than Abraham. So I want to do something. Uh, you probably notice whenever I want to look specifically at a word translated from the original language, I go to the New American Standard Bible. Very difficult Bible to read if you just sit down and read it, but very specific word-by-word um, -word translations. That's why it's kind of hard to read. So let's read it, that verse 3. Without father and without mother. Huh? Without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Big point. He was greater than Abraham and he was a king and a priest. But he is not greater than Jesus. But he is greater than Abraham. A priest forever resembling the Son of God. Made like the Son of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus resembles Melchizedek, does it? Don't, don't reverse the order. It means Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Don't switch them up. That's what that means. Some believe he's an angel or the pre-incarnate Christ. So when I say that word, I'm going to make sure I communicate it. When I say some believe he's an angel, all throughout the Bible you'll see, and the angel of the Lord did this. Uh, when Joshua was about ready to go across the Jordan River, Moses is gone, Joshua's going to lead him across the Jordan. Who's the encounter? The angel of the Lord. He says, are you with me or are you against me? <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good thing to ask an angel. I don't really know what is a good thing to ask an angel, by the way. He says, you with me or are you against me? And the angel of the Lord looked at Joshua and said, neither. To which Joshua said, uh-oh, that was a bad question. So who's he? Who is this angel of the Lord? Who's the, who's the fourth person in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There's, there's all these questions about the, who, who is this? So when I ask, um, was Melchizedek an angel of the Lord? Most people can understand that question. But when I say, is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Most people don't understand that question. So let, let's stop there for a moment and ask the question. Just, just so we think. If you were here in the early part of the Hebrew study, something became very clear. Jesus didn't become the Son of God in Bethlehem. You need to get this. You really need to get this. He did not become the Son of God only when He arrives in Bethlehem. Is He the Son of God in Bethlehem? Of course He is. But God, before the foundations of the earth, made Him His Son. Okay? Before the foundations of the earth, he became... Because when we got into the beginning of Hebrews, what did it say? Did God ever look at an angel and said, today you become my son? No. No. No, he didn't. But he, but he, but he declared Jesus to be some. How is that even possible? I mean, because we think son, we think what? Human, right? But no, no, no. And, and I, I remember making a very poor attempt to describe, and I'm going to do it again tonight, I'll apologize because it's as good as I can do. God is spirit. He's not a man. God the Father is not a man. Not a man. In fact, Jesus says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He lives in unapproachable light. So I want you to consider first, let's start with God the Father. He is not a man. And yet, before the foundations of the earth, before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 
God does something. Here's my poor attempt. God takes a part of himself, a part of himself and separates it into a, a person. Today you have become my son. He's not human flesh. That will not occur until Bethlehem. But today you have become my son. Today I have become your father. I mean, read it. It's in here. How? I don't know. I don't know how it works. That's why I say it's a poor description as I can come up with. But he's done something that separates this person from himself. They are one, but they are also separate. So, now let's go to Genesis 1. Who's creating? Genesis 1. Who's creating? Who created the heavens? And God created the heavens and the earth. Well, who's creating? If you go to John 1, it says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was made was made by Him. Who? The Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who created in Genesis 1? Jesus. He didn't have any skin on him, not yet. He doesn't get skin on him until he goes into the womb of Mary and comes out. Then he's God in the flesh, right? So who's creating in Genesis? Okay, stay with me, stay with me. Y'all give me that look, okay? It's like, whoa, pitchforks time. So from Genesis to Bethlehem, where is he? What's he doing? Jesus. The pre-incarnate Christ. The word incarnate means he became flesh. Before he became flesh in Bethlehem, where is he? Well, he's created everything. The Bible says in Colossians, he holds all things together. He is, he is in fact, if, he, if Jesus removes himself from the formula, everything will fly off and separate and turn to nothing. He sustains our life. He is everything. He is, he is the creator. He is the sustainer. Even before he becomes flesh. So, so all of that crazy background to come ask the question, who's Melchizedek? Is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Without beginning and without end? Without a mother and without a father? No genealogy? A priest forever? I don't know. So if you were hoping, I'd say, yeah, that's him. So we can move on. I don't know. Do I lean that way? Probably. But I don't know either. I mean, a whole lot of people smarter than me can't figure that out. I will ask when I get up there, say, who was Melchizedek? Is he an angel? Is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Now, now, I will say this. It is evident to me that the pre-incarnate Christ was active between Genesis and Bethlehem. He's active. Why do I say that? Because he's everything. He's not a sideline player in this game. He is everything. He is everything. You can't exclude him from anything. But that doesn't mean he was Melchizedek, and it doesn't mean he's the angel of the Lord standing there with Joshua when he gets ready to take Jericho. But I mean, he isn't. If he wasn't the person doing it, he was directing it. How's that? Because he's everything. Some believe, so let's, let's flip it over. Some believe he's an ordinary man, and Genesis has no record of his genealogy. It's possible. I think it's unlikely. Why? Because he's a priest forever. How do you pull that off if you're a man, if you're a normal guy? How do you do that? I don't know. Honestly, no one knows the answer to that one, and perhaps it's not even the main point for us for chapter 7. The main point is he is not from the priestly line of Aaron and the Levite. Do you hear me? See, I think most people get so hung up on who is this dude that you miss the point. You know what the point is? He is not from the tribe of Levi. And again, maybe right now that doesn't mean anything to you, but here we go. Two things make this incredible. Two things make this exciting. He is a high priest forever, and Jesus is going to be a high priest from the order of Melchizedek. But Melchizedek 
is not a Levite. And in the Old Testament, the only way you can be a priest is what? You have to be a Levite. And it's not just being a Levite. You've got to be a Levite from the family of Aaron, specifically Moses' brother. So that's one. I left off the second one. And he's a king. He's a king and he's a, he's a king and he's a priest. Nobody else does that. So who is this? He lived before there was an Isaac and a Jacob. So if he lived before Isaac and Jacob, he lived before Levi, because Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Levi had a son named, keep going down, and that's where you're going to get Moses, and that's where you're going to get Aaron, and there's where you're going to get the priesthood. So this priest is a priest before there's priests. There aren't any priests, right? Because Abraham became the father that would eventually bring the priesthood. So let's go to verse 4. Consider then how great Melchizedek was. I've already said he's greater than Abraham, right? Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses requires that the priests who are descendant of, a of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are the descendants of Abraham. Now Paul's. Hebrews is New Testament. We're not, we're not in Genesis anymore. We're in Hebrews. So Hebrews looks back at the Jewish law and describes that the, that the Levites are the priests and the Levites had a calling of God to collect a tithe from all the Israelites, 10%. It was normal. If you were a priest, you had to take an offering. All right? Verse 6, But Melchizedek was not a descendant of Levi collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promise of God. And without question, without any question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who, uh, who is blessed or receives the blessing. So who gave the blessing when Melchizedek approached Abraham? Melchizedek gives the blessing. He is greater than Abraham. That's what, that's what the Hebrew writer is trying to communicate. This is clear. Let's start here. As much as we revere Abraham, he is the, the standard bearer of the word faith. There's a verse in the Bible. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he became God's friend. Abraham believed God. The measurement of faith was what Abraham did. Right? He became God's friend. But Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and he was a priest and a king of God. His authority was from God, but his authority, now stay with me, but his authority was not part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not part of the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant is what Moses is going to do under the law. This looks to be totally separate. A unique and separate calling. Now let's go to verse 8. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. Makes you not want to take up the offering, right? Yeah? The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told what? He lives on. He didn't die. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, this is, yo, one of these, here we go. Here you go, that's what's about to happen. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't even born yet, the seed from which he came from was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. Are y'all getting this? Uh, I need to slow down. What he's saying is Abraham had inside of him the seed of Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, one of those being Levi. Inside of Abraham was that seed, even though that seed had not come, it's way down the road. 
But when Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek, Levi is doing it through Abraham before Levi is born. Whoa. Yeah, y'all go explain that to somebody. Go ahead. Did Melchizedek not die? Says he lives on. And what's the contrast? The contrast is these Levit Levitical priests, they took up an offering, they all died. They received an offering and they all died. Melchizedek received an offering and didn't die. Who is this guy? Deep stuff. The seed of Levi was inside Abraham when he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So the Levite priests were tithing to the priest named Melchizedek before they ever became priests themselves. Somebody up really high has got all this worked out. Stay with me. What's the point? Jesus is our high priest. And he is not from the tribe of Levi. I'm going to tell you, you could struggle with a lot of things, but do not miss this one. Jesus is our high priest. And he is not from the tribe of Levi. He, listen, has a superior priesthood. Greater than the Levitical priesthood. Verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law of Moses was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? Anybody see where this is going? With the priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron. Why? I'll ask you the question another way. Was the priesthood of Levi saving the world? No. Couldn't do it. What did God want to do? Save the world. John 3.16. Could the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood fulfill John 3.16? No. For God loved the world so much that he started a new priesthood. Not from the Levites. So that what? We would not perish. Because everybody's perishing. You are seeing in this verse, you are seeing the reason for the new covenant. You're seeing the reason. The original covenant was with Abraham. The priests in the old covenant were from the tribe of Levi. But the new covenant will be through Jesus from the tribe of what? Judah. Judah didn't have priests, but they do now. And this one, he is a king and he is a priest, both. His name is Jesus. Go to verse 12. And if the priesthood is changed, let's say that God decides the priesthood's not going to be Levites anymore, they're going to come from Judah. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit the change. Or God would be a lawbreaker. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served on the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses never mentioned priests coming from the tribe of Judah. The new covenant of Jesus was announced when? The Lord's Supper. Do you know that? The Lord's Supper. In this new covenant, and by the way, I want you to know that the word covenant as translated could also be translated testament. So when you're reading the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're reading the new covenant. Do you know that? In fact, when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading the Old Covenant. And this New Covenant was announced by Jesus at the Last Supper. In this New Covenant, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is a priest. He is a king. Now, he is a king from the lineage of David, but he is not a priest from the line of Levi. No. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Last Supper. 
Lord's Supper, okay? After supper, he took another cup of wine. And he said, this cup, what's he holding up? Wine. He's got his 12 guys around him. It's, it's Thursday night. They will nail him to a tree on the following morning. And he holds a cup up and he says, this cup is the new covenant. It's so easy to read over that, isn't it? Like, that's just one of the details of the day. No, 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 you don't understand. This is not a detail of the day. This is the detail of the day. What he's about to do is establish an eternal priesthood. How do we start tonight? He is the one who takes us through the veil into the presence of God. How? He's holding it. He's holding it up. This cup. I am moved by this thing. It's his own life is in this cup. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. What do priests do? They make offerings from man to God. What's he going to do? He's a man. Except he's not going to make an offering of an animal. He's going to offer himself. Himself. This cup is a new covenant between God and man. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Poured out as a sacrifice. He's becoming the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Why do we need a new covenant? And why do we need a new priesthood? And why do we need a new law? Let's go to Romans chapter 8. <coughs> the Bible explains the Bible. <coughs> Much better than I can explain. The Bible explains the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now, what's Romans? That's a letter to a Gentile church in the church age. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses. Here we go. Why do we need a new law? Why do we need a new priesthood? The law of Moses was unable to save us. Here we go. Why? Why? The law of Moses was unable to save us because of our weakness and our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. You know what? I'm going to make it simple. He changed us from the inside out because we could not change ourselves from the outside in. Couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. Nobody. Do you know what the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit is? When he changes you from the inside out. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body. In a body. He sent his own son. Put him in a body. That's what Bethlehem is. That's what Mary, the Virgin Mary is. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Here comes the priesthood. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead, do not miss those last three words, instead follow what? The Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's transforming our hearts. We can't do it ourselves. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody on earth can do it. Why, why did the law fail? Because the law took your external 613 mitzvahs. That's what they're called. 613 rules. That's what the Jewish law comprised of. 613 things you can do and what you can't do. Don't eat a goat in its mother's milk. Don't eat a goat in its mother's milk. That's one of the mitzvahs. But you know what? That won't save you. So what did he do? He took his son, put him on a cross, became the, high, the, pro, the prophet, priest, and king, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm coming. Just wait in Jerusalem. I'm coming. And this time when he came, he came as the Spirit. And he didn't move into a house next door. He moved into the house of you. 
and he moved into your house. And now the power of the life-giving spirit lives in us, transforming us from the inside out. No law can do that. Only God can do it. And I'm going to tell you, we can't do it for ourselves. He does it. Prophet, priest, and king from the tribe of Judah. Let's go back to Hebrews 7, verse 15. This change has been made very clear since a different priest. What changed? The law? Right? This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi. Uh-uh, that, ain't, that is not how it works. But by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, here comes your second one of these. Here you go. The psalmist announces Melchizedek. Whoa. Okay, you might not get it. The psalmist is a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Jesus. And he knows about Melchizedek. Huh? He knows about Melchizedek. So I wanted to, how did King David, this psalmist, how did King David know all this a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Jesus? Because I'm about to read to you Psalms 110. And if this doesn't stretch your brain, then you need to get somebody to punch you. You're asleep. And, and before I read it, I'll answer some of the questions. Do you remember when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, to anoint the king to replace Saul? And he goes through all the boys. And, nope, you're not it. No, you're not it. Is there anybody else? Yeah, I got one kid out here in the sheepfold. Bring him in. And he anointed David. And what did the Bible say? Powerful words. Didn't happen in the Old Testament. Almost never did it happen in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit came upon David in power. It's in the Old Testament. What? The Holy Spirit came upon David in power. So, when I say, how could David know a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Jesus what I'm about to read? Well, let me read it to you. Psalms 110. The Lord, notice in the NLT, You'll see it in the other translations. They use capital in all three letters, L-O-R-D. The Lord said to my Lord. So I, I, want, I want you to visualize something. God the Father said to the Spirit that has come to me. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Spirit that I had received at my anointing. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies. Is God talking to David? No, you better think deeply before you answer that question. Is God talking about David when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. Is David sitting at the right hand of the Father? Nope. He's not. Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I do something. Until... I humble your enemies, making them, your enemies, a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments, and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. Who's talking about who? Are you with me? Holy garments. Your strength will be renewed every day like the morning dew. And then the Lord, there's those big capital letters again. The Lord has taken an oath, and he will not break his vow. Whoever he's talking to, this is, so if you're questioning whether he's talking about David or a, a man who's going to come in a thousand years from now, he says, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. 
He will shatter heads over the whole earth, but he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. He is a priest. Listen, and he is a king. And he's going to make war. And in the end, just yesterday morning, I was just doing some random reading, ended up in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And I want to tell you what, if you want to understand Psalms 110, what I just read, go read Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I'll tell you, they're not fulfilled yet, but they're coming. It's when a northern alliance of military warriors were going to come against Israel. And God himself will come and fight. He is the king and the priest from the order of Melchizedek. He is the one displayed in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And we're watching. I believe in our day, we're watching the formation of that military that will eventually bring itself down against Israel from the north. An Arab alliance, I believe, led by Russia. This chapter, this, this is amazing. This chapter, Psalms 110, what I just read to you, is quoted in the New Testament by Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and I just read it in Hebrews. You think it's important? That's how many places it shows up in the New Testament. A thousand years after the time of King David. Anyone confused yet? If not, let's keep going. We'll try. Verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But Jesus lives forever. His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. What was unique about Melchizedek? His priesthood lives on. Jesus' priesthood is forever. There was not a single Levitical priest that could defeat death. Not one. So let's, go, let's do something. Jump over to Romans chapter 8. The Bible explains the Bible. What shall we say about such wonderful things as this? Let me put it in context. What shall we say about such wonderful things as this new priesthood? As this, uh, this new covenant? Jesus' blood. What shall we say about these wonderful things? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. What do you think a high priest does? He stands between man and God. And he pleads with God on behalf of mankind. What's Jesus doing today, right now? Right now. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he's pleading for us. He's our intercessor. The fundamental role of a high priest. Stand between God and man and reveal God to man. No man can approach God without this righteous high priest. Understand something. Nobody's going to be able to just walk up to God. You're going to have to have an intercessor. In the original covenant, there was a day of atonement where the high priest would enter the presence of God. One day per year. It's called Yom Kippur. And he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. This sacrifice of blood would hold back the judgment of God by atoning or paying for the sins of the people of Israel. But it would only last for one year. And then next year on the next Yom Kippur, they had to go do it all over again. Until Jesus came. And now his blood is the final sacrifice. Let's go to Romans 3.25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Pause for a moment. Do you think the blood of Christ on Calvary had any effect on the people who lived from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ? Yes. 
Yes. You think the blood of Christ only place pays forward? It paid backwards. If you ever question that, let me read it again. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past. For he was looking ahead, what? In the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. He was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. So what was sustaining them? The law sustained Israel until the high priest in the order of Melchizedek arrived. The law. Why? Yom Kippur was paying off their sin debt every year until the final blood of Christ came. That's what sustained them until that time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is just, is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when, when they believe in Jesus. We all have sinned against God. We all need a high priest to stand before God and intercede for us. There's only one that can fulfill that role. So let's go. I'm going to finish chapter 7. Here we go. Verse 26 through 28. We will finish chapter 7. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners. And he has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, what, those Levitical high priests? Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sin first, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given... God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made perfect, the perfect high priest. How long? Forever. Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, the Lamb of God from the tribe of Judah. Anybody understand why there's no other way? So when somebody comes to you and says, you know what, this whole Islam thing and this Buddhist thing and all this Muhammad and this Hinduism and, and, and it's just all different ways to the same God. No, it's not. It is a big, fat lie. Do you see the detail of this designed plan of God? This is incredible. And there's one way. This is it. You lose this, you lose everything. So I want to do something. I want to go back to Hebrews 6. One, one, one chapter back and read the end. I, I read it when I started. I need to read it one more time. In light of what we just have covered, I need to read it one more time. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge. I want you to think that's us in this room. We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Do you think there's any other way you're going to get through that curtain? You're going to leave this world and you're going to enter the world of God in the presence of God. He leads us through this curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Verse 20, Jesus has already gone in there for us. You don't have to wait for him to do it. He's already done it. He's already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know, how, how many of you all, just give me a show of hands, how many of you all read that uh, weekly thing I sent out called A Word from Terry? If you don't get that and you would like to get that, all you got to do is send me an email. And I'll put you on an email list. You'll get one of those every week. I send out a weekly thing called A Word for Terry, from Terry. It's just something I read, I study, I get something, and I just put together something once a week. I want to close tonight with something I sent out two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, it was called The Priest King. And here's what I wrote. 
And then God did something amazing. He announced it through the prophet Zechariah. God was going to combine these two roles into one person. What are they? The priest and the king. God was going to combine these two roles into one person, Jesus. Jesus was coming to be king and the high priest, ordained and appointed by the, by the authority of God the Father. Now I want to read Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. And this is about 600 years before Christ, before he's born in Bethlehem. Tell him. This is, this is the prophecy of, of Zechariah. Tell him. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Here is the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then he will receive royal honor and will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne. And there will be perfect harmony between what? The king and the priest. Now here's where, I, here's where I'm going. The king, and under the, the Old Testament standard, was the judge. Right? He's the ultimate political authority. He is the judge. Anybody would stand accountable under the authority of the king. The king, the judge, and the high priest. What do you think about the high priest in the judicial system? The high priest would play the role of the defense attorney. Right? So I want you to change the names from priest and king to two different names. Judge and defense attorney. You with me? These, Zechariah announces that there's going to be a man in the future who's going to merge the two roles into one role. Nobody's ever been able to pull that off. You know what? Because nobody was righteous enough to do both. But there's going to be a king who judge who will become the priest, the defense attorney, and he'll be the same person. Listen carefully. They were going to become the same person. The person that has the power and the authority to sentence and judge us has now become the person who will defend us. How incredible is this scene? Let me put it this way. We have all sinned and broken God's laws. We are all guilty and we will all one day stand before the king. All one day, every one of us, we're going to stand in front of the judge. God knew that we would never survive this righteous judgment. So he appointed a high priest to come to our defense. What do you think will happen when our judge and our defense attorney becomes the same person? Think about it. What do you think is going to happen to you and me when our judge and our defense attorney becomes the same person? What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. It's, it's found in Romans 8.31. What shall we say about wonderful things is this? If God is for us, who will ever be against us? So here's the thing. What we've been reading tonight in Hebrews chapter 7 is the judge and the defense attorney are the same guy. So when you stand in front of the judge, who's going to bring charges against you? Nobody. Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the judge and the defense attorney are the same guy. What if you don't belong to Christ? Does not apply. The judge will judge you. And you will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And nobody will be able to say, what? You did it. It's not somebody else's fault. You did it to yourself. We have a high priest who is also the judge. He is the king. He is the defense attorney. He is both. But I'm going to tell you what, if you stand before the judge without this defense attorney, you will be sentenced to eternal death without parole. Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanksgiving for this new covenant.
when the priesthood and the king were merged into one because you knew that would be the only way we would survive judgment. So thank you for your word that you have revealed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we are grateful for this great, marvelous gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.